and welcome to episode 49 of Etc. Etc. I'm your host, Aug Stone. 49, that's a good Pinchonian number. It's a lot of episodes anyway, pun somewhat intended. So exciting news that I've been hitting at lately. There's a couple young Southpaw releases coming up this summer, the first of which will be out July 27th. It's called Humpty Dumpty in HD, and it's a wild look at the Humpty Dumpty nursery rhyme set to electronic backing by Bobby Barry, who was in the Puppets back in the day and releases his own stuff as Monster Bobby. These days he does a ton of stuff for the quietest. So I'm going to play you a little bit of that. So yeah, who is this cat? Humped it, dumped it. Why is he portrayed as an egg, you know? Because it's easy to break. But that doesn't even make any sense. I mean, why would, why would horses be trying to put an egg back together in the first place? Horses don't even lay eggs. The closest you come is like, like a platypus, maybe? And that's a semi-aquatic creature with a duck bill. Not very close at all. And you assume an egg breaks. There's like so many little cracks and whatnot. You can't be putting it back together. I mean, trying to get all that yolk and all the other stuff back inside, you know? It's crazy. And why was he so important to the king? I mean, what type of kings are giving eggs vital roles in their ruling of the realms? If you like that, there's more than six more minutes of it. So mark your calendars. It and the video will be released on July 27th. And then another tune, completely different and completely secret for now, is going to follow on August 12th. There's a ton of other stories up on youngsouthpaw.com, so check some of those out. And some other cool news, my Nick Cave's Bar memoir is continuing to be stocked at cool record stores around the world. The latest being Newberry Comics in the Boston area, Repo Records in Philadelphia, and Alibi Bookshop in Vallejo, California. I'm putting some signed copies up on my Bandcamp shop too. That's at augstone.bandcamp.com, where there's a live recording of the album as well. The story is about a crazy adventure my best friend and I went on in 1999. A complete stranger had told me that Nick Cave owned a bar in Berlin, and without doing any further research whatsoever, we flew from Boston, Massachusetts to Germany to find it. It did not go well. Our second night there, we got hold of some absinthe, which caused a two and a half day hallucinatory hangover and saw us wind up in Prague, quite a ways away from this bar we were trying to find in Berlin, which ended up not existing anyway. It was a difficult, miserable experience at the time, but a lot of fun to look back at now. And actually, last year I found out there was a bar that Nick Cave and others used to hang out at in Berlin in the 80s called the Rizico, and Blixa Bargeld even bartended there. And I wrote about that for The Quietus earlier this year. It was really cool to learn about that place that must have inspired this rumor we heard that really led to quite a defining adventure in my life. So that's Nick Cave's Bar, and copies are available everywhere online as well. 
So let's get to today's show. It's a pleasure to have John Higgs back on the show. Last time I did the interview as Young Southpaw, which was a lot of fun. You can still find that show. It's episode number 21. And I can't recommend his new book enough, William Blake versus the World. For anyone who has an interest in Blake, it's an essential read. I've always found a lot of Blake's stuff somewhat impenetrable, and John does a great job of presenting Blake's ideas really clearly and concisely. It's a really wonderful book, so let's get to it. All right, we're here today with John Higgs. How you doing? I'm uh, very well. Good to talk to you, Og. You too, man. I love the book. I got to congratulate you first off. Uh, it's great. That's very kind, and I appreciate it massively. I am... Um, Blake's ideas are not easy to understand, and you've <laughs> presented them really clearly and concisely, and it really helped me grasp them a whole lot better, um, which yeah. is wonderful. Yeah, he has a philosophy, a perspective on the world that is so different to everyone else's that we can't just simply label it or put it in a box or sort of say, oh, it's that. You know, you just there's nothing for it. You just have to dive in and attempt to see the world through his eyes. Um, but it's, it's such a rewarding thing to do, I think. Yeah. Um, and I definitely felt I was gaining wisdom by reading your explanation of it. Like, you know, it's, it's uh-huh. a lot clearer to me now. I was wondering, did you feel that way at any point while writing it when things like suddenly became a whole lot clearer for you? Oh yeah, definitely. It was, it was, um, I mean, it was a weird year, obviously it was written during the, the lockdown and the pandemic year. So there was very little in the way of, you know, other distractions going on. Yeah. Uh, so I was just there getting falling deeper and deeper into the Blake hole um, and sort of staggering away from my laptop after a day's work with eyes like saucers occasionally just trying to go, oh, how do I get that across really neatly? <laughs> how do you explain these things in a way that, that's going to make sense to uh, to people? Mm. Do, do you have a preferred time of working when you write? Uh, no, I not well, just, just during the day, really. It depends. I mean, ideally, in an ideal world, I'd just write in the morning and get everything done and then have the afternoon to do all the other stuff. But the ideal world is not the one we live in, unfortunately, and stuff keeps happening and, you know, you have to juggle as much as possible. But as long as, long as I write, as long as I write every day, uh, or at least four days a week, it has to be at least four days a week, um, then, then the the word count piles up, and then the books get written, and then, you know, then I've done my job as it was. So, where did the impetus to write this book come from? Was it written completely during the pandemic? Or? Uh, yeah, well, it was planned before. I say I say planned. It was a weird one for me because normally, um, I have been thinking about a book for usually about four or five years before I write it, and when I'm writing a book. There's about four or five other ones like slowly cooking in the back of my head mm. and you just leave them there and they cook for a number of years. Um, and then there's this weird scenario when, when you finish one, uh, one of them steps forward and says, it's my turn next. I'm the next one. And you just never argue with it. And all the other sort of semi-cooked books sort of step back and go, yes, we agree. It's that one's turn now. So and they did give you no trouble about it at all. But I was I was finishing a book and then sort of the notion of a Blake book just sort of barged rudely in front of everything that had been there for ages. And it was right very insistent. It was like, no, I'm needed. It has to be now. You have to do me next. Uh, no argument. It was the most sort of insistent 
book idea I've ever sort of had. And obviously, you don't argue with things like this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, uh, yeah, and, yeah, and it, it did. It does feel a good time. I think it does. It does feel necessary and, and right. I think with a, with a lot of William Blake, for a lot of people, they feel they feel very much drawn towards him. Uh, they sort of recognise as a connection, but they don't understand him. They don't know where to go to sort of get to know him deeper, to get a more, a, a, you know, a, a better understanding of him. Um, there was a huge exhibition over here in the Tate Britain Gallery. It had about 300 pieces. It was room after room after room. There was about a quarter of a million people over here went to see it. And it was just overwhelming with the amount of stuff they had. It was just extraordinary. And people were going to see this and realizing that clearly here was someone very important who who should be part of their lives, but just sort of being spat out at the other end, not really having any clearer sense of what his philosophy was or how he saw the world or, you know, what what his value, well, maybe not his values, but not just not understanding him. It's like, it's like Blake was this sort of, uh, you know, extraordinary Gothic castle. And, and we know inside there's like wonders and treasures, but there just doesn't seem to be like a way in for a lot of people. You know, there's no sort of nice open drawbridge for the, to sort of wander in. And people are not sure if they're welcome or whether they need permission or they just think, don't feel that they can just get inside that, that great sort of castle um and so that's that's what the book was written for really as a as a as, as a permission to enter i suppose when did you realize there was a whole lot more to it like that you um, wanted to explore well when you first encounter blake you know you're just you know scraping the surface of something immense and uh, enormous and important um and it might just be a few lines from the poem that sort of hit you or an image that just seems to come from another world. Um, there's always, yeah, you're always aware that there's something there, but it does, it just has this reputation for being um, difficult or impossible or too strange. It's, it's like, was he mad? And if I was to understand him, would I then appear mad? You know, it's that it has it has this slightly dangerous um, air of here's a completely different reality tunnel. Uh, you know, that if you were to enter it, you're never really going to be quite the same again. So it, that sort of troubles people, I think, and, and, and keeps them out. And I think there's also like the idea that he could just have been a madman and there might not be anything else to it. I mean, there obviously is, but when you're yeah. just looking at the surface, it is yeah, very I mean, just, that's, that's a real, um, a touchy subject. Is that, is that right word in, in the Blakeian world? I might be slightly over egging it there, but because when you initially see, especially his latest stuff is, his epic illustrated poems. It's, uh, I, and, and when you first encounter them, they will make no sense at all. Yeah. <laughs> and there is there is very much a sense that, well, maybe they're just mad. Maybe there's no sense to be made here. And so uh, Blake and academics have always had to sort of go, no, 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 listen, listen. 
once you understand his mythology, right, it makes a lot of sense. He was very, very sane. Don't think of him as mad. He was very, very sane. His, his, his system is, is rich and it's rewarding and it is, is, is life enhancing. And you should definitely make the effort to go there and know he's no way sort of mad. It's very different to um, Vincent van Gogh, where the scholars are like, yep, he was mad. You know, it's a very sort of simple thing that adds to it. And that's part of part of him. You know, I, th- I think now we've reached the stage where we can say that in his his sort of middle ages or early nine, uh, early um, 1800s, he went through a period of poor mental health where there was paranoia and there he was suspicious of people who meant him no harm and where he had um, periods of, of what he called melancholy, but which is very clearly depression and and um and uh, which he, he, he really recognized as, as a disease, which is so far ahead of his time. He would, he would write in letters that uh, he'd entered a pit of melancholy, melancholy for which there was no real reason, which God keep for you and all good men from this disease. It, words like that, he would, he would put it. His, his understanding of the mind was centuries ahead of, um, of his contemporaries, certainly, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so even though he did have a period of poor mental health, as I say, that's very different from, you know, his his system having no meaning or, or yeah. being of no worth or anything like that. And also you talked about the periods of melancholy. There are also um, like his his ego driven stuff, which, you know, in his philosophy, he talks about. Urizen, is that how you pronounce it? Urizen, yeah. Urizen. Well, we, we, don't, we don't know. No one knows how to pronounce the names of these characters because he just made them up and wrote them down. So you can, yeah. so you can't get it wrong. <laughs> Good. Call it whatever you like. Well, him sort of like blocking out the spiritual light with his own yeah. system that he believes is all. And there are little instances of Blake's, you know, like I guess petty jealousies is kind of a word, or like his his beef with with Haley, where he was the yeah. ego did cloud his vision, but like. I, I guess I kind of like that, although because it sort of made him more human. That it wasn't as if he was, you know. Yeah, he's. I mean, it's fundamentally what you get from Blake is he's he's very human, um, and certainly that's why I wanted to get across in the book. It sounds absurd if you're talking about trying to humanize a human. You know, something's gone horribly wrong at that sort of point. But there had been a little bit of a tendency to like put him up on a pedestal and treat him as more than human um, uh, because he was so talented and because he was, his work is so phenomenal that uh, we might want to see him as some sort of elevated sort of creature, but that's not in his work. It's just not there. Um, It sort of came just after him with the, the romantic movement where the notion that the artist was somehow more important and more special than other people. And that sort of starts to, to sort of bubble up with that. And especially, um, it was a, uh, a more upper class movement of uh, people like Byron and Shelley just sort of touring around Europe and with their private incomes and the, the need for those people to, to see themselves as more special than, than you know, people without money uh, is, is, is a recurring theme in that sort of thing. Blake's got none of that. Blake is um, purely human for all his visions and, and, and these things. You know, he never try and set himself up as a guru um or or a teacher or or anything like that um what he was really trying to do was show himself as human but make you realize 
what that meant to sort of elevate our understanding of what the experience of being human could be, uh, in particular in terms of, you know, our minds and our imaginations and raising up uh, our concept of the imagination into something greater than we might sort of dismiss it as. So he, he wants us all to be fully human, but his definition of human is considerably more magnificent than, than most people's, I guess. Yeah. And you're saying about him not having money to do all that stuff. I mean, he was poor for his whole life. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. And it can, and it can um, it's very easy to see his life as a tragedy. It's often sort of portrayed in that way. He was, um, for people who don't know much about William Blake, uh, he was a working class uh, London artist um, born in 1757 who who would never who basically he saw visions all his life and hence got a reputation for being strange or, or mad or um, odd um, and he his career never really took off like his peers did from art, the Royal Academy of Arts that he he attended to uh, he had one exhibition in his life where which was like above his brother's shop and uh, they, you know, they sold nothing, and they got one review that referred to him as an unfortunate lunatic. Mm. And he died uh, and penniless, and was given a pauper's burial in Bunhill's Fields. And when you put his story in those sort of terms, it's very easy to sort of see it as a tragedy, but it's so not. It really, it really isn't. There's a, there's a, there's a story I, I always love about um, a, a little girl who met him when she was she was about six. And she met Blake towards the end of his life. And he said to her, I hope one day you'll be as happy as I am. And she sort of looked up at this sort of disheveled, penniless old man. And she just couldn't get her head around what he just said. It was just so wrong. It was just so strange and wrong. And it wasn't until she was about 80, at the other, at the other end of the 19th century, when she got to about 18, she, she finally understood what he'd said to her. She finally understood that that man was, you know, living in paradise for, for want, of a, want of a better term, was living in a, in a, in a more golden world and having a richer life uh, than any. He was rich in sort of every possible way you can be rich, except financially, you know. And one thing that really struck me was uh, just his dedication to his own belief yeah like the fact that he had to do the engravings to letter them to do mirror writing yeah. just how much work like let alone like the fact that he's putting all this this writing that most uh, everyone at the time could not understand mm -hmm. that he's putting that out in the first place the lengths he went to to get it out were also extraordinary it was it was, it was like a compulsion almost it was like a compulsion to create and mm -hmm. he had a need to create uh, in fact, he reminds me a lot of Prince. I, I, I wrote a thing for uh, there's a magazine called The Quietus, an online magazine comparing Blake Great and magazine. Prince. Um, and um, it's it's for many reasons. For many reasons, I could list I could list many different connections between them. But that sort of need to sort of um, work, um, which Prince did. He would just he would have he would have you know an engineer on standby twenty four hours a day at Paisley Park. Uh, and at any point, he would just go in overnight and write a song and make it and finish it and then just put it in the vault. And the next day, write another one, make it and finish it. 
put it in the vault and no one ever heard them. You know, there was the, the audience was, you know, just prince and spirits. That's, that's the only people who heard these things. It was making them that mattered. Mm. It was, it was the act of creation that mattered, not the, uh, not the uh, adulation of an audience or, or anything like that. Uh, it was, it was, um, it was like they couldn't help themselves. It was like, it was, it was almost like they were addicts. They just had to keep, keep working and creating has that piece been published? On the yes, comments? it has. Yeah, I missed that. I have to check that out. I, I can send you a link. Yes, I was quite pleased with it because it's like you know, you know, Blake saw visions all his life and very famously saw um, uh, a, a tree in Peckham Rye, south of London, that where every every branch and every bough was spangled with with angels when he was about eight years old, and you know, and Prince also talked about you know angels curing him of epilepsy as a child and. Uh, and there's connections in the way that, like, sexuality and religion were pretty interchangeable for both of them. You know, they <laughs> yep. were very firmly, firmly linked. It was a, it was a spiritual uh, attitude, very different to most churches. Yeah. The musician aspect is interesting because I, I read Blake at school, you know, read Songs of Innocence and Experience, which were, you know, comprehensible, comprehensible. Um, but then like when you looked yeah. at, when I looked at the later stuff, it was like, well, this is going to be a lot to go into. Yeah. You know, it's going to be work and not that yeah. it wouldn't be rewarding, but you know, there's so many things to drive your attention to, but it was hearing musicians talk about him like Julian Cope and Ja Wobble mm -hmm. that it hit me. There's more here that is worth investigating. Definitely. I mean, it, the, the 1960s counterculture did a lot of good for, um, the Blake's reputation, um, mainly because, you know, uh, these people were looking for models to sort of get their heads around what they were experiencing, what, what was happening to them. Um, and there really wasn't much else that described, you know, the, the psychedelic world that they were finding, except Blake. Blake seemed to be writing about exactly what they were experiencing once they, you know, took LSD or mescaline or or whatever, and it and this particularly comes from Aldous Huxley, who in was it the nineteen thirties experimented with mescaline and wrote um, the Doors of Perception and Heaven and Hell, which are uh, you know some of the first and probably most influential books about tripping, for want of a, a better way of putting it. And you know Huxley just had to go to Blake for his metaphors and and his and his way of framing things, and hence the Doors of Perception is a. Is, a, is a, a quote from Blake, and then Jim Morrison. Jim Morrison in the 1960s calls his band The Doors, based on this. And so there's this this, this chain of um, of influence with people like Allen Ginsberg, and um, you know, there's there's Blakean references in uh, Hendrix and, and Dylan and, and and various things. Um, and it's it's this particular aspect of Blake that they they latched onto. It's the um, it's the sexual liberation side of him. It's the anti-authority. It's the uh, it's the belief that art will overcome. You know, it's 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 the the um, creative, liberated, individualistic sort of um, aspect of Blake that really chimed with the psychedelic sixties massively. So yeah, it's not surprising that so many musicians have uh, have have uh, find him such an important important figure. And, and as we go further and further, and we're long distance past the 60s now, 
we find other aspects of Blake that 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 uh, they weren't sort of so interested in at the time. There's a there's a lot more um, uh, that seems to chime with the sort of more modern sort of our sort of more empathetic 21st century view of the world. Um, he's just he's just one of those characters that the the further we we progress as a culture, the more we learn and the more we sort of um, get our heads round we keep finding that blake was always ahead of us that he he knew all this as well and we were sort of this long process of like trying to catch up with where he was you know and we may have a long way to go but we've we've got quite a distance in 200 years so it's uh, yeah it's uh it's it's we're in an all right place perhaps but we've got a long way to go and he seemed to have a sense that history would validate him yeah i get that from him definitely he, he does um he wasn't making a huge amount of effort to get an audience. It seems to us, you know, he was, um, he wasn't sort of, you know, making his work easier and more comprehensible when people found it difficult. If anything, he was just doubling down and going further and further into, into the, into uh, a world that only he really understood. Um, but he did sort of have this, this belief that, you know, it made total sense to those in eternity for, or whatever he would phrase it, that there were, there was an audience that would appreciate it. Um, and, and he was right. Mm. You know, it's, it's, he's, he was right in many things. There's, he wrote um, a poem called Milton uh, about the, uh, the, the late great English poet, John Milton, who sort of comes back from, from the heavens as a star and sort of lands on his foot and sort of possesses him. And, uh, and Blake's then becomes the next in the line of, of poetic genius uh, from Milton onwards. And at the time that must've seemed so insane. So mad. considering how low Blake's reputation was and how few people sort of understood him or read him or valued him for him to say that, well, it's, I'm in the, I'm in this great sort of canon of I'm in the pantheon, you know, must've seemed just, just so delusional. But now we go, well, yeah, absolutely he was. <laughs> he was completely right. Yeah. So how, how did you discover Blake? Um, how did I discover Blake? On some levels, he's sort of, certainly in England, he's, he's, um, he's everywhere. But he sort of, like he, he sort of creeps up um, out of the cracks in the pavement almost. He's, he, he pops up in in like, you know, comics or in music or in video games, he comes up a lot in. Um, he's, uh, it's not like, say, Shakespeare, where the, the establishment have Shakespeare and there's the, there's the Globe Theatre and there's the Royal Shakespeare Company and there's Shakespeare on the BBC and you're given it at school and you're sort of, it's all handed down to you from on high uh, as this... Um, uh, this approved sort of historical sort of culture. There's a bit of that with Blake. You're probably going to be taught poems like The Tiger at school. You're going to know the hymn Jerusalem, mm -hmm. but mostly it's the writings on the wall. You know, it's 90, it's the, it's the, it's, it's, it's proverbs of hell being used as, as, uh, as graffiti or, um, or appearing in memes. He just sort of, he just sort of bubbles up in this really interesting interesting way where he's um the counterculture and the establishment both 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 want him both have a have a sort of 
uh, a take on him. You know, I was uh, just yesterday, I got literally within hours of each other, I got um, an invite to talk on Russell, ba- Russell Brand's podcast and also an invite to talk at Eton, which uh, if, if people in America don't know Eton, it's the, it's, oh God, it's this private school that just churns out murderers and prime ministers. It's the sociopaths factory. Um, it's uh, it's the, the elite of the English establishment. And uh, nowhere on earth would I like to step foot inside it in any way, shape or form. But to get Eaton and like Russell Brand yeah. both contacting me within like a few hours, I just thought that's a rare combination. That's a, that's a strange, yeah. a, a strange thing. Yeah. And you mentioned that a bunch in the book that it's it's hard to comprehend what the establishment well not maybe not hard to comprehend what they see in him but the fact that they're using his work when it seems yeah. to be the opposite of everything he yeah definitely I mean it's almost like everybody has a slightly different understanding of Blake but because he's so multifaceted and so so sort of rich and expansive. They're all kind of valid in their own way. We're all latching onto only a small part of him, myself included. We all get a little slice of him. Uh, and so normally when you you come across other Blakeians, it's really exciting because they've got a different angle on him and they they see different things in him and they they focus on A rather than B when you might sort of, you know, find find other sort of bits of bits of interest. He's um, you know, the more people look at him, the more we'll sort of discover. And the sort of, you know, and, and the notion that, that there is a person who has the one true, correct understanding of, of Blake, um, you don't really, yeah, a little bit, but, you know, it's not really a thing in the Blakey world. It's much more, uh, it's much more sort of um, accepting of all the different perspectives, I think I'm trying to say. Which is what he himself uh, believed, that it was about the, the contrarities, is that, that the word? The contraries, yeah, the opposites. That the world is built from defying uh, opposites. It's like um, uh, well, a good way to think about it is is like a newborn baby. Baby's born, and it has no mental model of the world in its head at all. It's just this blank slate. There's just noise and chaos coming from its uh, senses, uh, and slowly it, it starts to discern differences. It's like the first thing it does is, is, is dark and light. That's why newborn babies, if you give them like black and white things, they, they sort of stare at it quite a bit. They don't have, they don't know color at that time because they have no concept of color. It's just noise. It's just sort of chaos. It's just the, the strange place they are. And they, they sort of work out dark and light and then maybe hot and warm and then hungry and not hungry. And by sort of defining these um, countries, they sort of build this mental model of the world uh, in, in their heads. Um, and it's very interesting if you read Genesis, where the, um, the, the figure of God is portrayed as this, this creator God. Uh, uh, but really, he's doing exactly the same thing. He's in this strange, shapeless void, and he's basically going, well, you know, that's day and that's night. That's land and that's sea, you know, that's that's sea and that's sky. He's just defining everything as as um as countries and he's not creating anything at all. He's just labeling things, he's just categorizing, he's just creating this mental model to, to understand what's outside him. Uh, but 
he makes the mistake of believing that he's created the world, which is this character Eurozin you just talked about, that, mm -hmm. that, that sort of rational side of our mind that sort of creates this sort of mental model. Um, uh, yeah, that's a real core part of, of Blake's understanding. Um, and because he sort of covers, because he, he, he always, you know, he, he won't just write about angels. Because if you don't have angels without demons, then it's meaningless, as he sort of sees it. You sort of need both. Um, it, his stuff is so all-encompassing. It's, it's why whatever you look for in there, you'll find, because everything is, is, is part of it, I think. Yeah. What I like about your baby example is that it, there's no original sin in that. It just yes. is, yes. and then Absol things come. Absolutely. No, the, the, the error is to believe in your own bullshit, hmm. is to believe in your own models and think that your models are the thing, you know, not realize that the, you know, the map is not the territory and the menu is not the meal. It's the, those, these, these, um, these ideas that I've, I've written about a lot in terms yeah. of Timothy <laughs> and Robert Anton Wilson and uh, Discordianism and stuff like that. You find them all there just in Blake. He knew all that sort of stuff. He was totally on it, you know, hundreds of years before. I don't, did Robert Anton Wilson mention Blake at all? I, I can't recall. Not him. often. No. I mean, it's there was um, his historical Illuminatus um, uh, trilogy, the novels that he did. Um, there's a there's a there's a moment where his main character goes to London when Blake was around, and he doesn't meet Blake, and I was just gutted. <laughs> I thought that's a real, real yeah. shame that he never sort of he ever did that. He, he he mentions him occasionally, but he doesn't go deeply into him. Oh, I think said, if he did go deeply into him, he'd be quite surprised at just, you know, how much it crosses over with his own philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned that uh, when you explore Blake's mind, you find that he has thought about what you were preoccupied by, which you just said. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Have you found examples of that with your own life when like it happened? Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah. Um, hence that book. Hence that book. <laughs> that's uh, that. That's what. That's what I'm preoccupied with. And then I look at Blake, and that was the result. It's. <laughs> it's. Uh, it's. Yeah. I mean, he's he's very clear that, um, as he puts it, as a man is, so he sees. You know, the, yeah. as he wrote, you know, a man, um, you know, a tree that could bring others to tears of beauty is for others just the green thing that stands in the way. You know, it's it's the world as you experience it is as much uh, a, a reflection of you, as, as much a self-portrait as it is an objective reality out there. It's, it's the, the two are, it's impossible to sort of separate the two. Mm. Um, and we live far more than we think in a world that is a gigantic portrait of ourselves. Yeah. That's, that's, um, uh, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a really interesting thing to come across at that point in time, really. It's in, in and the other side of the postmodern 20th century, we can grasp that fairly well now, I think, but at, at the time it was so far ahead of, uh, of, of regular thought, it's, it was, you know, quite incomprehensible to, to, to many people. Mm. I've studied uh, Chinese metaphysics for years. Oh, yes. So the idea of yin and yang is very yeah, much yeah. what he was saying with the, the contraries, that you, 
you can't have one without the other and it's their interaction that makes things yeah. happen yeah I, there's definitely um uh a lot in blake that you go oh that's Taoist." yeah you know, I, I kept seeing sort of similarities in there and then like there's kabbalistic stuff as well like the idea of everything first uh forming being in a world the world of the imagination and then mm. brought into being, but it starts, you know, in that higher level. As above, so below. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's echoes of so many different um, religions or philosophies or, you know, uh, ways of seeing the world in there. Um, Gnosticism, there's a lot that seems yep. very Gnostic, but it's he's not quite Gnostic because, you know, he doesn't hate the body. He sees the body as part of the soul, which is, you know, very different to gnostics who would be you know whipping themselves because they thought that the flesh was the prison of the soul and all this sort of stuff um so he doesn't fit neatly into any particular there's a lot of vedic thought there's you know there's there's um it's 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 a sign of such an original mind that he could see the world in a way that's almost impossible for the rest of us to categorize that there hasn't been anyone who'd had that particular perspective before uh which is which is why i think there's so much truth in there why it seems there's so little um that is just as just what you're told there's very little that he you know he didn't go to school as a child his his worldview his philosophy was not um you know not something he learned by rote put it that way it was just it was just this um it was just what he experienced and thankfully for us because he was such an extraordinary poet and such an extraordinary painter we're able to sort of experience that in in a way that we can't with many other uh, thinkers speaking of his paintings i know you're also an iron maiden fan yes um, and bruce dickinson uh bruce dickinson's a big blakeian yes. yeah and the uh the uh, the chemical wedding album cover is the ghost of the flea painting it is yeah and it has nebuchadnezzar on the on the back which is blake's painting of nebuchadnezzar when he was sort of uh he was a king who was turned into a beast for uh, uh i think seven years or something like that and he was just out in the wilds eating the grass with this huge strange beard and um it's a painting that bruce dickinson particularly identifies with because i think he was crawling out of a hotel uh room got someone godly hour and saw himself in the mirror and just realized he looked exactly like nebuchadnezzar just this beast this beast of a man um yeah so i, I don't know if you're following all the um uh hints that uh about the forthcoming iron maiden album but there's a there's, there's oh you've got oh your eyes shot open no oh, you're not please, following please all this. <laughs> well i don't I, um it's it was this funniest thing because over here in the UK, uh, it, Bruce Dickinson gave an interview to I think Sky News about a theatre tour, a spoken word tour he's doing, and they asked him about his opinion on Brexit because he he'd been in favour of Brexit, uh, and now pretty much most of the music industry is aware of just how fucked they are by Brexit and how, yeah. how difficult touring is going to be. Yeah. Um, so he was complaining about that. And so uh, most non-Iron Maiden fans on things like Twitter were going, oh, look at this fool, look at this idiot. He voted for it and now he's got it. And look at it, you know, they're taking that attitude. Iron Maiden fans were going, are the, 
are there secret clues on his T-shirt in, in that they're about to release an album about the fall of Babylon? And uh, yeah, it does seem that he was doing it with secret clues on his T-shirt about this 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 fall of Babylon or Baltimore's feast um, uh, album with a date fifteenth of the seventh. So in in a week from today, oh, you will probably know more. But there's a whole you know the, the whole um, uh sort of rabbit hole that people have been falling down sort of desperately researching the book of daniel and uh, uh the, the end of the babylonian empire and uh, the tower of babel and uh, nebuchadnezzar and all this sort of stuff from from this this t-shirt that he was wearing it's great stuff wow i will have to look into i, that. I suggest you get onto google afterwards <laughs> i will i definitely will <laughs> Yeah, it was just a, it was just a difference in attitudes between Iron Maiden fans and everyone else uh, at this this interview. Did it was just very telling and quite funny. I thought. I love Iron Maiden fans are just so dedicated. That the film, the uh, what, Flight Six Six Six. Oh yeah, have you seen yeah. that? I, yeah, I have. Yes, I love that the passion the South American fans felt yeah. when they went and played. Just how much it meant to them was really Absolutely. heartwarming. Absolutely. And the fact that they would go to these places that huge touring bands don't normally go to, and they can only do it because they've got their own 747, which Bruce <laughs> Dickinson then flies over the Andes or, you know, flies to parts of India that don't normally get, get you know, the full set and the full sort of full sort of show just all around the world. Yeah, it's quite a thing. Yeah. About the ghost of the of a flea, I, I really liked what you had to write about that in the book, that it's sort of showed uh blake's vision like just that he was seeing that everything everything he painted that he saw he saw yeah. in vision as he as he as he put it he saw in his mind's eye yeah uh yes because there's that great sketch where he was, he was doing a drawing for someone of this thing um and then it moved mm-hmm. so he couldn't finish it so he had to do it again with his mouth in a different position you know it wasn't it wasn't something he was making up in his mind you know, he was, was just like frustrated with it for not sort of, you not sort of uh, keeping, you know, a good stance for a while. And he had to then, then start again and do another sort of drawing because the damn thing was being st- stubborn <laughs> for this horrendous, horrible little scaly figure, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. speaking of the quietest as we had before and Iron Maiden, you have talked about Eddie, right, with uh, John and Luke before. Yes. Oh, well, that ties in neatly, doesn't it? Yes, I have. I have talked about um, uh, Eddie for their uh, subscribers podcast, Eddie the Head, um, which is the basically is the spirit of the band as I see it, mm. um, and it's 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 this sort of prepubescent, scrappy little kid who just wants to play and be everything and like be a soldier and be an airline pilot and be a, you know, a, a, a mummy or, or be a space cyborg or, you know, just, it's just, it's just, uh, un, it's quite postmodern, but it's unfettered. It's just, it's just, it's just sort of, um, uh, yeah, it's fascinating because at the end of a concert, as you'll know, this giant eddy sort of rises up and it's at the end of the stage, a set point in a set song at the end of the of the thing. And it's just such an extraordinary experience when it sort of happens. It's like you get quite a lot of occult people trying to sort of summon this spirit, summon a spirit, blah, blah, blah. It never really works, except an Iron Maiden concert. 
And this thing, when it rises, when it rises up at the back of the stage, it sort of rises up inside you at the same time, and you yeah. become possessed by the spirit of <laughs> the spirit of Eddie, uh, who is the the music of the band. This really sort of theatrical, sort of mythological sort of thing, um, has a has a really sort of yappy young boy. It's great. Yeah, it's great. I'm all for it. I, I forget if this was a young South Buster or not, but I once said that uh, that would be a great way for Thomas Pynchon to make an appearance, like how he's famously <laughs> up recluse and, you know, in the Simpsons episode, he, he appears with a bag on his head. It'd be great <laughs> if just on one Iron Maiden date, Thomas Pynchon <laughs> came up as the Eddie and no one knew it was him. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe he has. Maybe. Yeah, maybe we don't know. <laughs> a few times we just don't know. <laughs> One thing I really like about your work is that it's immensely positive, even when the uh-huh. future sometimes seems bleak, like your history of the 20th century. Yeah. Um, have you always been that way? Yeah. Um, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm very aware that the, when you put something out into the culture, when you release a book or you, you put something out there, that it has uh, implications. It, 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 uh, it's, it's happened because of it. It's, it's, um, it's very easy to, um, in terms of writing, this is, it's very, if, you're, if you want to be a writer and want to be taken seriously, to have a very sort of cynical view of the world is a good way of doing it. You can make a good living if you take the view that like like people are terrible and we're all fucked, yeah. <laughs> you take that view, you know, the people there'll be chin scratching and people going, oh yes, that's very serious. If you use all your wit and intelligence to come up with brand new perspectives on why everything's doomed and we're all stuffed that people haven't thought of before, you know, that's a good way to sort of make a living. But it's not what you're putting out there is just you know why are you doing that for God's sake? You know that's yeah. just. It's just, I don't know. I don't know. There's, it's, there's, there's such a dead end uh, in um, that particular worldview that you just end up, you know, I don't know, just in a very cynical, isolated, um, terrible place, uh, which is why I'm drawn to, to people like Blake, who just who just saying the absolute opposite? You know, with Blake, it's very much a case of, um, yeah. How do I go? How do I describe this quickly, without going into the whole <laughs> whole philosophy of William Blake? With 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 Blake, the the spiritual or the um, immaterial world is interior. Right. This is the opposite to how we're taught. It's the opposite to most of Western philosophy, which says that um, heaven and hell and uh, demons and angels and all those things are out there somewhere. You know, that hell or heaven, um, you can't go there now, but they're a, a way away. They're beyond their exterior. For Blake, it's the opposite. Um, but thus man forgot that all deities reside in the human breast, as he, as he put it. These are all sort of in, internal states. And it's very interesting that sort of fairly secular 21st century, how sort of useful this, this notion is, this, this idea, because we may not believe in hell, as in hell is a real physical 
place that's some distance away that you may be sent to. Very few people, very, very few people believe that. But we've probably all met someone who at some point in their life has been living in hell. Mm. And we probably all recognize to deny that would be wrong. That, that, that their internal experience is a valid thing that need, that we can't deny, that, that it's, it's their life, basically. Mm. Um, and once you accept that, then the notion of someone like living in heaven or living in paradise, as you know Blake claimed to be, that starts to make a little bit more sense than it did before. And a lot of his work, the, the, the particularly the poem Jerusalem, which is about turning this, this dirty uh, violence in equal city of London, you know, into this sort of golden shining, um, uh, you know, heavenly celestial sort of sort of place. He recognises it's very much an internal change. It's it's a change within us. It's what we were talking earlier about how the external world is a reflection of our insides, our internal one. Um, with Blake, it's oh god, I'm not explaining this. I'm not answering this question at all at all. Well. But with <laughs> but with Blake, um, the the option of transforming the world for the better, so that it's a world worth living in, so that it's it's uh, a life um, worth living, you know, is always present. It's always there. It's always there. Uh, and the notion that you would want to do other, that you would just sit and write snarky sort of online columns about why such and such a politician is a terrible politician or you know people know all that sort of stuff you know people don't need to have their heads shoved in the awful nature of things and, and with Blake it's great because he never shies away from the horrors of the world as we were talking earlier about how he, he includes everything you know he writes a lot about child chimney sweeps or inequality or injustice or suffering and all those things he sees all those things he, he's not Putting his head in the sand and pretending that everything's nice and everything's lovely you know that's not him at all you know he, that's all very sort of real and bad you know how the world is and how you are yourself are two sort of separate things and there's one you can work on and one you know that you can um, help to improve uh and uh that doesn't clash or contradict with the need to you know help others or, or do something positive yeah i'm just rambling now Org. i'm sorry no no, no i'm totally with you no sense at all i'm sure <laughs> i mean it's a christian line that you know doesn't most christians i know don't really talk about it. the kingdom of heaven is within yeah that, yeah which, De definitely yeah. definitely i mean he blake very much saw himself as a christian yeah uh and uh, jesus was very important to blake it's just his definition of jesus was probably not shared by many other right. practicing Christians <laughs> then or now. You know, he saw Jesus was the imagination thing. That the imagination was this divine force that that brought um, the, the things that we knew into into the into the into the world, and that was our salvation. Um, uh, but yes, it is. It's in it's in the Gospel of Luke. The kingdom of, of of heaven is within. It's very very. It's clearly there. But that really isn't how the the church teachers yeah. <laughs> you know how the, how the world works the, the kingdom of heaven is you know you ain't getting, getting there now mate and it's maybe after you die but it's 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 some distance away and um it's it's an i that idea is uh, it, well, it comes from plato well before that the pythagoreans uh the the idea that the immaterial 
is some distance away, is beyond, is external. In Plato, it's the idea of these um, these perfect forms. If there's to be a chair in our world, it needs to be the ideal, the idea of a perfect chair in some perfect realm else, elsewhere. And um, uh, Aristotle then came along and went, yeah, it's, I'm sure that's nonsense. But after that, the early Christian church came along and went, that's a really useful idea in, that will help us take this idea of this local God of Israel and turn it into something universal and create this universal religion. So they sort of picked up on it. And then we get the monasteries and then we get the universities. And then deep in their heart is this Greek philosophy and Christian teaching that the, the, uh, that the spiritual and the immaterial is external. And it's so buried so deeply in their foundations that we just can't see it because we can't see it. We can't question it. We just accept it. And we just, you know, except for Blake, Blake totally saw it and he saw straight through it. Um, and uh, yeah. And as, as a result, everyone in his time couldn't make out what he was saying at all. It was just, just beyond them. Um, but we're getting there. We're, we're, we're making sense of him now a bit more. <laughs> Um, back to the idea of positivity and negativity. Negativity, I think, is also easy. Like, there's plenty oh. to complain about if you look at it. But I was introduced to her through your uh, Watling Street podcast, um, mm. Selena Godden's Pessimism uh, yes. for Lightweights. Yeah, I exactly. love that. <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant. It's and it's it's the way that phrase has taken off uh, is just glorious. It's um, she's a force of nature herself, is Selena Godden. But she, there was a big women's march in Trafalgar Square, and it was like 20,000 people, and she got up to perform it. And um, it became, you know, uh, a real rallying cry. Pessimism is for lightweights, the recognition that, um, yes, it's easy, it's easy to just to give up. It's easy to give up. But uh, really ain't no point because, well, it's, 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 um, it's, it's as Robert Anton Wilson would 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 say it uh, it's um that uh you know the the pessimist will give up where the optimist will come up with a hundred different possible ways of trying to achieve something and just by sheer statistics you know the odd one is going to be is going to be a view so just mathematically you know having a positive mindset is going to be better than having a negative one uh let alone you know the 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 impact on your quality of life. Yeah. It just takes, takes a little bit of work. Like that's, that's the thing with Blake is it's not easy to understand. You have to put in the work. But but work is important in in Blake. It's to Hmm. be active uh, is everything. Energy is eternal delight. You know, you need to, to um, uh, it's, it's a great dance, you know, just, just being static and, and passive is, it's not what we're here for. Certainly, certainly not in in Blake. So, it reminds me of another uh, great self mythologizer, um, Alan Moore, with yes, North, his yes. Northampton uh, yeah. voice of the fire. I uh, I like the challenge of a difficult book, and after reading that first chapter, that's written in a language from four thousand years ago, I put it down yeah. for like two months. But I was, you know, I, I wanted to read it. And then the next chapter, <laughs> still twenty five hundred years ago, it was so tough going. But then. Yeah, it was yeah, so definitely. rewarding to actually go through it. And, and yeah, def- definitely. Yeah, no, it's great. That's a superb book. Uh, and But Selena Godden's got a novel out called Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death. 
uh, which I heartily recommend. Um, that, that's, I mean, you can tell it's written by a real poet. Um, uh, yeah, that's, that's a superb book. I think Idris Elba's got the film rights to it or something, so maybe something oh, wow. will come from that. Okay. But uh, I, I heartily suggest going, going and reading the book now. Have you read Finnegan's Wake? No, I haven't read Finnegan's Wake. Uh, I've read some Joyce. Um, I'm not as enamoured of it as Alan Moore and Robert Anton Wilson and, uh, you know, a lot of uh, people who are very influential to me are. Um, uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, I should. And that's I another should, one that will involve a lot of work. I mean, I've read Ulysses and I've read a lot about Finnegan's Wake, and it seems yeah. interesting. Yeah, like Anthony Burgess writes a lot about it. And I was like, oh wow, this sounds fantastic. And then you pick up the yeah. actual book itself, and it's like, whoo, <laughs> I'm gonna have to put some serious dedication into this. Yeah, that, I mean, it is. This, it's, I mean, it was a the, the whole that modernist era um, of really sort of difficult stuff that gave you new perspectives. You know, I totally get the value and the importance of it historically. But there's a here, you know, in the 2020s, um, there seems to be other stuff that's more relevant to now than those new perspectives that the, the modernists were sort of coming up with. Uh, I don't know. I may, I, may, I, may, uh, I may be wrong. I may read it one day and go, what a fool I was. I should have simply <laughs> focusing utterly on this then. But that's the question I want to ask. What can we be taking from Blake now? That would be that would help us now. Um, well, I I mean, for me, Blake sh- shows the reality of the transcendent. There's a there's a lot of um, talk, uh, a lot of writing, a lot of um, thought over many centuries about. Um, this side of the universe outside of our rational understanding. Um, And most of it doesn't communicate the experience to us particularly well. The whole thing about visionary experiences being ineffable for a start, that you can't really get across what you've gone through when you've gone through this thing, even though we get, you know, people from all different cultures across, across, all the centuries reporting these strange visionary experiences, not being able to sort of communicate exactly what they're like. Um, the fact that Blake was such a brilliant artist and poet, as I was saying earlier, you know, he could, he, he basically could just show us his work and, and that's his proof. And you look at it and you go, Oh, it's real, isn't it? This is, this is real. What you've experienced is a real state um in a way that very few people can um so i think that's what's particularly valuable i mean we were talking earlier about how you can't label him and categorize him uh, in any shape or form you know there's there's some strong and to some degree valid arguments that you could classify him as an atheist when he says that the spiritual is is within he would have really not been happy about that at all <laughs> in the slightest but he does for modern people um he does sort of rescue centuries of theology and, and, and thought about these uh, these sort of spiritual states that if you are, you know, a, a modern atheist, 
you just go, well, that's all you know, irrelevant and nonsense and just sweep it all away. Um, with Blake, once you see all those as, as, as internal, um, uh, as internal states, they do become relevant again. They do become interesting. It's almost like the concept of the soul mm-hmm. matters again, you know, uh, the soul. And it's, and it's kind of a big deal because like, you're the one who has to live with yourself. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's in those terms. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Anyway, I'm not, <laughs> don't know if that answers your question at all. Oh yeah, totally. Um, and you touched on the, uh, the importance of getting in touch with our right brain, how the left brain has taken your, yeah. yours and has taken over, but then there's the other three Zoas. Um, and you mentioned transcendental meditation. Yeah. Um, I, and I know that, uh, I had a question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, 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 it's ultimately the, if you read uh, a work of Blake's called the four Zoas, uh, the ultimate aim of Blake is to sort of get the, the mind back in balance hmm. to um to uh, at, at which point you're sort of open to stuff beyond your sort of rational mind while still keeping your rational mind where it's useful but sort hmm. of knowing the limitations of it it's it has this model of the world that's sort of finite and limited and it's recognizing that it's recognizing that your mental model world is finite and limited and there's something beyond it um, uh, which, you know, if you do things like transcendental meditation will make total sense quite very, 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 very quickly. Uh, and in the sixties, a lot of Blake was presented as this great struggle between Eurus and the rational, uh, which was, which is bad, uh, which is like this patriarchal controlling sort of figure and a character called loss, which was, um, the spirit of creativity, which was good. And creativity was going to sort of overcome rationality and, and things like that. But when you go into it now and you read things like the book of, uh, like the four Zoas, which wasn't readily available at the time, you realize it's, it's, it's not that at all. It is about the mind, uh, falling into balance and having the rational, uh, side of your mind sitting comfortably with the emotional part of you, with the creative part of you, with the physical part of you. Um, uh, and that sort of, that internal nagging battle, that's sort of your sense of self with its future that you're worried about and your guilt about the past, it sort of becomes, becomes um, balanced by what it means to be human in the here and now and, and, and things like that. Uh, yeah, that's all, that's all incredibly useful. I think that's all incredibly useful. Yeah. That, I'm definitely intrigued by the four zoos. It, I haven't read it. Um, wasn't mm. really aware of what it was about, but yeah, totally. It's good. It's, it's got, it has a reputation as being his hardest. It's, okay. you know, it's, it's <laughs> challenging. I don't think it is. I, I compared to something like Jerusalem. I think it's, 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 it's all right. I, I suggest giving it a go. Yeah, we'll do. So what else you got going on? There's always four yeah. or five books in the back of your brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, you know, seventy thousand words through the next one. Wow. I will. I'm, I'm not announcing what it is at this point. Uh, not until October the fifth. Then I'll then I'll sort of announce it. Um, but um, yeah, working on. I mean, it's this the the Blake book is the reaction to it's been far more than I was. You know, it's been fantastic from what I've been seeing online. It's great. People are just getting good. Uh, So that's kept me 
busier than I, I would expect sort of trying to sort of promote these things uh, because you can't go out, you know, there's no literary festivals on at the moment. I'm not sort of going out sort of doing talks for except, except occasionally and rarely. There's a lot of, you know, Zoom stuff and interviews and online things and videos and all that sort of stuff has been uh, taking my time. But I'm, uh, hopefully I can get back into just, just writing again quite soon. Yep, that would be a lovely thing. <laughs> she did a big thing at, was it the British Library. Yeah, I can't yeah. believe how. I mean, it's it's like um, Neil Gaiman did a bit for it, and uh, I don't know if you know Kay Tempest, who's just an extraordinary poet. She's the president of the Plague Society. Oh. Uh, she came along and she did a reading for us. And Selena, who you mentioned, she was our voice of Blake. And um, uh, there was they had Blake's notebooks there. We got to see Blake's actual sort of notebooks. And uh, I was interviewed by the comedian Robin Ince, and it was at the British Library. And it was like, what's going on? This is this doesn't normally happen to me. <laughs> this is not how I normally sort of try and get people to pay attention to a book. It's it's uh, it's because of Blake is special to so many people that they would come along and do all these these things. And uh, uh, yeah, it, yeah, that was that was amazing. It's it's, it's online on YouTube. Oh, cool. If you want to see me dressed smartly in a suit, trying, <laughs> trying, to, trying to pass myself off as a professional. <laughs> you had that great quote from Terry Gilliam on the book, too. Yeah, that was lovely. That was, that was really nice. <laughs> yeah, was, um, see, he, was, he was a big fan of my KLF book. Oh, nice. We knew, which, was, which is quite a, a, a joy to think of, you know, yeah. Terry Gilliam sort of reading the KLF book. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I'm delighted. Yeah, it's really kind of him to give us that. He was just the perfect thing because, you know, Terry, he's, he's a visionary genius and we all know it, but he's not um, frightening. You know, you're not scared. You're not off put. You know, you know, he's not off putting. You know, he's yeah. lovely. There's part of him that's lovely. He made time bandits with us. So, you <laughs> yeah. know. Um, so that was exactly what we wanted for the, the cover. And then when he did it, it was just brilliant. Awesome. Yeah. Great. Well, do you have anything else you want to add? Uh, oh God, no. Um, no, I think I think I blabbed away uh, enough about Blake for, <laughs> for yeah, one day. Sign up to your newsletter. It's always a very interesting oh, read. it's all that sort of stuff. Yeah, actually, sign up to a newsletter is is a very good move. You know, I'm sort of just about to get off Facebook. I must I must cancel my Facebook account. It's mm -hmm. not a, it's not a thing I I like Facebook. So I'm yeah. gonna shut all that down. Um, but I am reachable via my website and um, johnhicks.com and the, the newsletter there is the best. Yeah. Way to know what I'm getting up to. I and think, Twitter? Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter. Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Um, I think there's um, a version of the Blake book coming out in America and Canada next summer. Oh, cool. Um, I haven't actually signed the thing yet, but that's that's the, uh, the uh, that seems to be going, going through okay. So it's but, not out here yet? It's anyway. You can get it. You can yeah, get the okay. British. Get the British version, but um, because of the way these things work, you probably can't get the audiobook version. No, so I, I get a lot of messages from people over there going, um, "Why can't I get the audiobook version?" And I can only say, "You just you could emigrate." <laughs> <laughs> but now, but we seem to have, we seem to have a publisher for, for for the book now. So hopefully, the audiobook version will come as well. Excellent. Hey, well, thanks very much for coming on the show, John. It's great to talk to you again. Hey, it was really nice to talk to you, Org. All right. Hope you enjoyed that. I know I did. I highly recommend getting your hands on a copy of William Blake versus the World. It's really 
enlightening. And don't forget July 27th, Young Southpaw's Humpty Dumpty in HD is coming out. And in the meantime, there's a ton of wild stories up on youngsouthpaw.com. And if you want to grab a copy of Nick Cave's Bar, there's a list on my website, augstone.com, A-U-G-S-T-O-N-E, where they're available pretty much everywhere online. Thanks for listening. If you want to share or subscribe or rate and review this episode, that would be much appreciated. And until next time, Thank you.